Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, John Gunnison of Adventure House, and John Woolley, celebrate Dashiell Hammett and the detective story, with a discussion, and a few shots. The talk was recorded on August 16, 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. John Gunnison begins. Oh, wait a minute, forgot. Hold on. <laughs> Better be a third one. That's, that's for you, John. Mm-hmm. This one's for me. Mm-hmm. And for Dash. Happy 121st birthday to Dash Wilhammond. There we go. Yeah. Well then, last May, Abe Books put up a list of its biggest sales right up there in the top five. Thank you. It was a first edition of the Maltese Falcon. Are you going to pour or are you going to do your Oh, I'm sorry. There we go. It was in a dust jacket, kind of beat up, and it had sold for $25,000. Along with the thin man. And what did you do with all that money? I'm not going to tell you. Some of it went into that. Along with the thin man, the Maltese Falcon is Hammett's most enduring work. And in that period between the publication of those two books, Falcon in February 1930, Thin Man January 34, Hammett became a star. Now, for evidence of that stardom, remember the very opening of the first Thin Man movie. Although it was not a hugely budgeted picture by MGM standards, it still had a couple of well-known players. It had, of course, William Powell and Myrna Loy. But MGM opened the picture not with their names or their images, but with a shot of the book cover with a dapper full-body photo of Hammett and his name in huge letters. Well, tonight we're going to do a couple of things. First, we'll take a look at what Hammett created and how many of his creations spun off into different forms of media. And second, we've got some ideas about Hammett's books, about why he famously never wrote another one after The Thin Man, when the world seemed to be wide open for anything he might have wanted to put on paper. So let's go ahead and get started with okay, that. Okay, here we go. Let's go. Jiminy Christmas, John, you're killing me. <laughs> <clears throat> Most of Tonight's getting shorter all the time. Most of us know that Hammett worked as an operative for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency in the years 1915 through 1918. We also know he was tubercular from an early age, and he spent much of his life dealing with intermittent flare-ups that made it hard or impossible for him to work. Another thing most of us know is that he didn't start out as a detective story writer despite his background. Now, most sources indicate he made his first sale in 1923 to the American version of Pearson's magazine. That was kind of a highbrow publication, certainly a mainstream publication, whose British counterpart, here's a little trivia, had first published H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Hammond's story was called Holiday, and it was an autobiographical tale of how he snuck away from a TB ward to have an adventure in, in Tijuana. Seriously. Uh, Early on, though, he most often hit with poetry and sketches for Smart Set. You got that? Yep. Good for you. 
I don't have to drink again yet, do I? Oh, okay. You, Sorry. You just, yeah. Not every time you change the slide. Oh, okay. <laughs> the publication. We got you know. <laughs> Yeah. You'll remember that publication was the reason that the literary heavyweights, H.L. Mencken and George G. Nathan, launched Black Mask. They owned Smart Set. Smart Set was highbrow, but it was losing money. And so Nathan and Mencken decided they'd make a lot of money by getting into the pulp market, and they did Black Mask. They wanted to make enough money to, from that lowbrow detective story magazine to keep the literary magazine afloat. Well, Hammett was in his mid-20s at this time. I think it's safe to say that at this early point in his career, he was drawn to the literary side of writing rather than the purely commercial world of the pulps. All the bios of him that I've read, and I've read quite a few, indicate that he was a voracious reader as a young man, and classics and other literary works formed a big part of what he read. Next, there you yep. go. Now, according to William F. Nolan's book, Hammett, A Life on the Edge, when Minkin showed Hammett a copy of Black Mask in the early 20s, Hammett was, quote, shocked by the magazine's crude, unreal melodrama. None of the stories represented the harsh world of crime he himself had experienced, close quote. So Hammond started writing his own stories for Black Mask, beginning with the December 22 issue, and even if his literary aspirations ran counter to his appearing in a pulp magazine, you know, early on he used that pseudonym Peter Collinson, which was Carney slang. Peter Collins was uh, Carney slang for a nobody. And Collins' son was even more of a nobody. But Hammond ended up being maybe arguably the biggest influence on what became known as a hardball genre. Which brings us to something I think is very important and very revealing about Hammond. Joe Gores, the writer, said it. Hammond was not a writer learning about private detection. He was a private detective learning about writing. And I think that's something we'll, we really need to think about. We'll come back to it, and I think it's really telling. So, Hammond, under the editor's Phil Cody, and of course, all right, come on. Excuse me a moment. So, Hammond, I love show business. Under the editors, Phil Cody and most famously uh, Captain Shaw, Joseph T. Shaw, became the leading light of Black Mask and the Black Mask style that was evolving then. He was writing about what he knew in a terse, naturalistic way that broke with the old ways of presenting a detective story. By the late 20s, his Black Mask stories about the Continental Op, who was a nameless, business-like detective agency operative based on an old Pinkerton boss of his named Jimmy Wright, were getting into hardcovers already. It was at this point that his influence began extending beyond the Black Mask readership and into the book-buying population of mystery and detective fans that certainly weren't all pulp readers. Every one of Hammett's novels as distinguished from the short story collections and the occasional novella that was reprinted by a magazine came out between 1929 and 1934. All but his last book, The Thin Man, began as serials in Black Mask. The Thin Man first appeared in Red Book, indicating his progress from the pulps to the slicks, and that was a 
course, you know, that was a career path that virtually every pulp writer aspired to. We'll go more deeply into the book's contents shortly for now. Here's the chronology. Red Harvest and Dane Curse, both featured in the Continental Law, both published in 1929. Maltese Falcon with protagonist Sam Spade, 1930. The Glass Key, 1931. The Thin Man, 34. Only five novels, but their impact reverberated through American popular culture for decades, and really even now they still do. It took Warner Brothers, famous for their crime melodramas, three times to get the Maltese Falcon right. <laughs> Although, I gotta say, that first one from 1931, it's got a great bit of casting, and you guys have seen it probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, in the Alicia Cook Jr. part of, of Wilmer, the gunsel is Dwight Fry from the Universal Horror Pictures. Um, the Latin romantic lead in that one, though, Ricardo Cortez is really miscast as Sam Spade, but at least there's a Sam Spade in it. Now, that second try, 1936's Satan Met a Lady, is just kind of this Lane Betty Davis vehicle with Spade nowhere in sight. There's a lawyer played by Warren William, kind of the urbane kind of character, who helped, who later on played the Lone Wolf who helps Davis's character search for a jewel-filled trumpet. Then, of course, in 1941, with John Houston directing and Humphrey Bogart starring, they finally got it right. Bill Maynard wrote something very insightful in a post a few months ago. He said, no Hammond adaptation has remained entirely faithful to the written word or match the depth and flawed moral complexities displayed by Hammett's characters on the printed page. From what I've read and seen on the screen, I think the Houston Maltese Falcon does come the closest of all of the movie adaptations. Now, The Glass Key was also filmed twice, both times by Paramount, once in 35 with George Raft as the gambler protagonist, Ed Beaumont, and again in 42 with Alan Ladd, and for some reason, Ned, it's Ned Beaumont in the novel, but for some reason in both movies, it's Ed Beaumont. Between those two, in 1939, Orson Welles adapted Glass Key on Campbell Playhouse, and later on in 49, Don Briggs was in a TV version. Uh, Studio One in Hollywood presented it. Studio One in Hollywood actually originated in New York City. So, with five sequels, Oh, you keep, you're staying right with it. You well, got yeah, here, on? come on. That's, oh, that's I guess we're, I'm lagging behind. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. <clears throat> with five sequels, The Thin Man was probably had the most pop culture impact of any of the Hammond-based movies. Now, we're, a lot of us in this crowd are older baby boomers. We remember The Thin Man TV show, right? With Peter Lawford, Nick Charles, Phyllis Kirk, Nora. And to attest to the long-lived popularity of Hammett's work, we should remember the 1978 TV miniseries, The Dane Curse, featuring James Coburn as P.I. Hamilton Nash, not the nameless continental op in Hammett's original story. Now, in addition to the one-off broadcast adaptations, the Maltese Falcon radio adaptations, there were two of those in the 40s, and The Glass Key, Hammett's work was a basis for three radio series. First, Adventures of the Thin Man, 
which debuted on NBC on July 2nd, 1941 with Les Damon as Nick Charles. Then after The Thin Man, The Fat Man. Beginning on January 21st, 1946, J. Scott Smart played a character at least partially based on the Continental Law, not, as might be assumed, on Sidney Greenstreet's Maltese Falcon character. The Fat Man was even nameless in the early days of the series. And then finally, there was The Adventures of Sam Spade Detective, which also debuted in 46 on ABC with Howard Duff in the title role. All of these series ran for years, ending only when Hammett came under fire for alleged anti-American activities, as we shall see. Finally, there was the comic strip Secret Agent X-9, which debuted in newspapers across the country the same month as Thin Man was first published, January 1934. At the time, newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst was the head of King Feature Syndicate, and Secret Agent X-9 was launched as a rival to the Chicago Tribune Daily News Syndicate's hit strip, Dick Tracy, exactly. According to William Nolan's Hammett bio, Hearst had King Features President Joe Conley make a personal call to Hammett to create a crime strip. Hammett got top money and the freedom to do the strip however he wanted, which Nolan wrote, borrowed heavily from his own novels. That included not giving his protagonist, X-9, an actual name, a la the Continental Law for the first few stories, the character eventually got the name Phil Korg and it lasted a long time. With the great Flash Gordon artist Alex Raymond doing the art, Secret Agent X-9 was a hit. It ran for over 60 years and ended up after many artists and writer changes as Secret Agent Corrigan. Hammett actually scripted the first year or so of the series himself, about four story arcs that sometimes bore the handiwork of others at King Features. Then he left for other pursuits, although his name stayed on the strip for a while. It spawned two serials from Universal Pictures, released in 1937 and 1945. Scott Koch, one of the stars of All Quiet in the Western Front that Universal had done, was X-9 in the first one, and baby boomer favorite Lloyd Bridges was Phil Corrigan in the second. Now, while all of this was going on, Hammett was becoming increasingly more involved in left-wing politics. And while he took a few stabs at new novels, and even got a $5,000 advance from Brent Bennett Surf at Random House for one to be called, There Was a Young Man, he never delivered any new books after The Thin Man in 1934. He did pen a couple of detailed treatments for the first two Thin Man sequels, movies, 1936's After the Thin Man and 1939's Another Thin Man. Those were collected into a volume called Return of the Thin Man a few years ago by Richard Lehman. Then in the early 40s, he wrote the screenplay for Watch on the Rhine, an anti-Nazi drama starring Betty Davis, which came out in 43, based on a play by Lillian Hellman, Hammett's longtime friend and romantic interest for whom he also served for years as a de facto editor of her plays, although collaborator in some cases might have been a better word. By the time Watch on the Rhine was released, Hammett was on duty with the U.S. Army in the Aleutian Islands. Deep in his 40s, in poor health, 
a World War I vet on top of it all, he nonetheless managed to join up and he served for three years during World War II from September 42 through September 45. Much earlier, because of his left-wing politics, he began attracting attention from the FBI and others during a time when many American politicians were alarmed by Russian influence on our country's institutions. This feeling reaches apogee during the early 1950s, the days of commie fighter Senator Joseph McCarthy, the House and American Activities Committee, and a publication called Red Channels, which purported to name communist sympathizers in the entertainment industry. Wasn't really much more than a pamphlet, you could kind of tell from that. Uh, but it was important enough to ruin the careers of all the alleged commies that were listed in its pages. Now, since both Hammett and actor Howard Duff were fingered by red channels, The Adventures of Sam Spade Detective was the first of the Hammett radio series to have the plug pulled. Although the sponsor, Wildwood Cream Oil, denied that that was the reason. It happened in September 1950 on CBS, when it transmogrified into a series called Charlie Wilde, Private Detective, which had neither Duff's nor Hammett's involvement, although Duff's voice, wishing Charlie well, appears in the premiere Charlie Wilde episode. Sam Spade went to NBC for another 24 episodes with Steve Dunn as the star, but then it disappeared completely. Now, Hammett, back in the day, had kept the rights to the character, and so, He'd had to go through a lawsuit with Warner Brothers to do it, but he kept the rights to Sam Spade. And because the plug was pulled on the Sam Spade radio show, that was a lot, large part of his income went away at that time. Now, the same year ABC canceled The Adventures of the Thin Man, in 1951, both The Fat Man and the Steve Dunn Sam Spade went under, but a Universal International B movie based on the Fat Man radio series directed by William Castle, baby boomer favorite, didn't have Hammett's name anywhere on the poster. I hope you didn't make a liar out of me there, did you? No, absolutely not. Okay, good, all right. That's a stark contrast, think about that, to the way that he was portrayed at the beginning of The Thin Man, just not all that long before. Even in the early 50s, Hammett's novels were allowed to go out of print, at least for a few years. 1951, you might imagine, was a bad year for Hammond. In addition to losing all the income from his radio shows, he spent five months in prison for refusing to name contributors to the Civil Rights Congress's bail fund, which was used by the leftist group to get political prisoners out of jail. Ironically enough, the last book of his he saw published in his lifetime also came out in 1951, Woman in the Dark. There you are a paperback reprint of a novella he'd written for Liberty Magazine back during his glory days in 1933. From then on until his death in 1961, a perpetually broke Hammett. Either lived with Helmut, or Helmut that is, at a Martha's Vineyard home or in a friend's estate in Westchester County, New York. Then on January 10, 1961, he died of lung cancer. He was 66. He weighed 118 pounds, and the cause of his death was lung cancer exacerbated, according to the medical examiner's report, by emphysema, pneumonia, and disease of heart, 
liver, kidneys, spleen, and prostate gland. Other than that, he was perfectly okay. Exactly. <laughs> Other than that, he's in fairly good health. <clears throat> you know, until nearly the end, and this is, uh, this is a part of his life that has really fascinated me, a part of his work, Hammond had continued to fool around with another novel, Tulip, it was to be called. The few chapters of Tulip that exist were included by Lillian Hellman in her collection of Hammond stories called The Big Knockover, first published in 66 by Random House. Remember, Random House was the company that, that Hammond had stiffed on there was a young man nearly 30 years earlier. I believe that a reading of the 17,000 word beginning of Tulip, which is all we've got, is one of the keys to understanding why Hammond didn't write any more novels after The Thin Man. And I'd like to get into that now. I don't, I don't want to say that all pulp writers wanted to be serious novelists, but a lot of them did. I think of Hammond's black mass contemporary, Forrest Rosaire, who wrote for uh, black mask under the name, and other pulps, under the name of J.J. Desormo. He, in fact, in the, if you've got the hard-boiled omnibus that Joseph Shaw put together, J.J. Desormo was the first story in that, in that omnibus. He has the first story in it. But Forrest Rosaire, in his mainstream novel from 1949, 1945 called East of Midnight, has this really chilling scene to those of us who love pulse. His protagonist gets really disturbed. His old girlfriend comes back to visit and finds kind of hidden away a stack of pulps. Quote, the top one showed a screaming girl being stabbed by a blood dripping hand. The name of the magazine was Exotic Detective Stories. She finds some manuscript pages that the protagonist has written under a pseudonym near the magazine and puts two and two together, realizes this is one of his stories. She confronts him and he is so embarrassed and so ashamed to admit that he's writing pulp fiction instead of working on his serious novel. I don't think Hammett felt this way, at least not in the beginning. He had to know he was doing good and even revolutionary work in the detective story genre, but I do think that as he went along, he aspired to a more literary standing. After all, he'd begun his writing career in mainstream literary, literary magazines, and according to Diane Johnson in the bio Dashiell Hammett of Life, he later said he owed his conception of literary style and his ideas of method to Henry James. He even told James Thurber that the plot of the Maltese Falcon owed a lot to James's 1902 novel about a sickly American heiress called The Wings of the Dove. So he had a literary background and some literary aspirations to go along with it. And the way the literati felt back then, and really do now to a great extent, was no matter how good a detective story might be, it was still a detective story. And so it wasn't really able to be considered a work of art. I think it's instructive to look at the way Hammond's approach changed with each of his books, keeping in mind that all but the last one were tweaks of black mass stories. The first novel, Red Harvest, has a huge body count. Essentially what happens is a continental op walks into a corrupt town and starts unleashing the local murderous factions on one another. 
That one came out in 29, as did the other Continental Law book, The Dane Curse, that deals with the Southern California religious cult. But the body counts way down in that one, and that foreshadows the rest of Hammond's novels. Let's remember Joe Gore's observation. Hammond was not a writer learning about private detection. He was a private detective learning about writing. Although these are obviously novels, not nonfiction, Hammond at this point in his career is writing about what he knows. And if you've seen that smart set stuff he did, he used some of his Pinkerton knowledge and that stuff too, writing of sketches. And remember, the first thing he ever sold was a little sketch about his own life, taken directly from his own life. So his days with Pinkerton, coupled with his own intellect and artistry, gave him the ability to understand and delineate character. Not just criminal character, but the different kinds of criminal character. To be a good detective, he had to be able to think like a criminal. And I think that's one of the things that made his work so unusual and so compelling, especially for its time. Like many novelists, Hammett, to a greater or lesser extent, wrote about himself and his life. I think, for instance, he gave the Continental Lock the same sort of attitude Hammett himself had when he was an operative. He's just a guy trying to do the best job he can and give value for the money that's being uh, spent to hire him. In Dane Curse, the op tells the troubled young woman, Gabrielle, that he's only a hired man with a hired man's interest in her troubles. He doesn't really get involved emotionally in the lives of the people around him, although it's suggested here and there on rare occasions he falters, but when he does, he doesn't let anybody know about it. Right here's a good place also to mention the alleged Hammond Hemingway connection. Some have compared Hammett's work to old urns, mostly because of the terseness of dialogue and description, the drive of the declarative sentences, the ability to boil things down verbally to the barest minimum. But I think a better comparison be made between Hammett and one of Hemingway's contemporaries, John Dos Passos, who wrote stuff like Manhattan Transfer and USA Trilogy. Dos Passos wasn't as terse as Hemingway, but Dos Passos is like Hammett in that he didn't allow his characters any internal monologue. While the other characters, what the other characters in the book of Hammett's and in Dos Passos' books give you, what they give the other characters in the book is what you get. You don't get anything extra. You don't get to look inside their heads. You figure out the protagonist's motives on your own because he's not going to tell you. You're not going to see inside his head to find out. So with Maltese Falcon, the Hammond hero goes from the guy doing his job to a guy motivated by his own set of ethics. Sam Spade goes after the killer or killers of his partner, Miles Archer, because he feels like that's what he's supposed to do. And never mind that he's been carrying on with Archer's wife. The term existential has been thrown around a lot regarding Sam Spade, and that's as good his name as any for a guy who plays by his own rather than society's rules. There's not much of a body count in Maltese Falcon, and the reader doesn't even see murder happen. That's also the case with The Glass Key, which to me is the most literary of all of Hammett's novels. It's a fairly complicated story of a gambler, Ned Beaumont, getting involved in a search for the murder of a senator's son, and the only reason is because of Beaumont's friendship with a political boss. It's certainly plenty violent, but it also seems to be more about the demands and nuances of friendship and loyalty rather than simply the search for a killer. 
Reading it is easy to forget his detecting novel. The characters, including Beaumont, are more ambiguous. The plot often simply seems to be a device to let their characters move and breathe and interact with one another. By the time The Glass Key came out in 1931, Hammett was hanging out with Lillian Hellman, and truly, the smart set. She was a high-ranking member of the literati, and I suspect that Hammett's literary and artistic drinking buddies often harangued him about getting out of pulp detective stories and creating a mainstream novel worthy of his talents. I think The Glass Key may have been an attempt in that direction. I think it succeeded. Then there's The Thin Man. Here again, Hammett's writing about what he knows. In this case, what he knows is a life that is spilling over with witty banter, sophisticated friends, a smart and lovely female companion, and plenty of alcohol. I was, I was waiting for you to I lost, Yeah, I lost my place now. Um, alcohol. <laughs> alcohol, here it is, I found it out. It's a, it's a life that suits Nick Charles very well, and you have to believe it suited Hammond, too. Although Charles was once a detective, just like Hammond, he doesn't feel motivated to do any detecting anymore. There's some reference to him looking after his wife's interests, but she kind of has to talk him into being a detective uh, like he was before. He's not a guy doing a job. He's not a guy with an ironclad set of ethics. He's just a guy that his wife makes look for a reason for the murders because he was, after all, a detective. But really all he wants to do is just hang out with his wife and his charming, their charming friends and drink all of the time. Now, it's not bad work, but you get it. Did, you, had, say, did you say drink? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Folks, Vaudeville is not dead up here. Um, yeah, thank you. Hammett did have it then, and by 1934, he was a big success as a writer. He had plenty of cash in his pockets. He had plenty of alcohol. Everything. Did you say alcohol? No, I didn't. I did not say that, John. You know, this is all fake. Don't believe it. <laughs> In a letter to Hammett biographer Julian Simons, the filmmaker Nunley Johnson, who was one of Hammett's pals in the 30s and 40s, Nunley Johnson, of course, was involved with Grapes of Wrath, so many great films, he wrote, quote, Hammett told me that he stopped writing, that he stopped writing at the top of his career and his success, because he saw no more reason, he saw no more reason to write, when he not only had all the money he needed, but was assured of all that he would ever need for the remainder of his life. This turned out to be a mistake, but it was a sound enough belief at the time. That's what, uh, that's what Nunley Johnson said. But I think there was another reason. And I think you can see it in what we have of Tulip. The thesis is simple. Hammett wrote about what he knew, and he knew about crime, and he knew about detection, and he knew how to make a detective story come out right. When he tried to move out of that genre in a more literary direction, he was simply unable to find anything in his own life that was interesting enough to turn his talents toward. And his work also indicates that he thought that real life stories were always better than something you made up out of your own head. 
You go clear back to the continental op and see how so much of it was based on what he knew on real life things. In case you haven't read Tulip, it's a first person story of this old burnt out writer puttering around a home in the country looking at animals and stuff and not really doing much of anything else. It's a dead on portrayal of Hammond when he was living at Hellman's Farm, Lillian Hellman's Farm in New York. He's visited by an old army buddy named Tulip. Now, he tells Tulip he's still trying to get his book started. And Tulip says that the, pro insists that the protagonist, whom he calls Pop, write about him and his life. Tulip believes that that's all Pop needs to do. Just write about Tulip. Tulip says, I've had this wonderful, interesting life. We were army buddies. It's so interesting. And you could write about me, and then the log jam's going to be broken. Well, in the 17,000 words, these two talk a great deal about writing and about life, but Pop never once buys into the idea that Tulip's life provides enough good material to base a book on. Implicit in all of this, I believe, is the reason that Hammond never wrote another novel. Again, once he closed the door on crime writing, he had nowhere to go. He didn't think his current life was interesting enough, and without the detective crime element, neither was his past. At least that's my idea about how he felt and why he stopped trying to write. See, in Tulip, Pop is Hammond, for sure. But I believe Tulip was Hammond, too. Thank you. You know, that's an interesting thing because any writer has to have an ego as big as the rings of Saturn or he wouldn't be writing in the first place. And I think when Cap Shaw, I think even Phil Cody before that, but certainly Cap Shaw, insisted that the writers who thought they were doing just fine on their own and exploring their own way of telling stories were being, felt like they're being forced into a straitjacket to write like somebody else. I think that's why they resent, honestly, I think that's why there was the resentment. Um, no one likes to be said, could you, could you write more like somebody else? You know, I, I was with a newspaper for years writing entertainment and I would write a lot about musicians. And the last thing that they wanted somebody to say is, this is the new somebody. You know, it's not the new Barry Manilow, the new Garth Brooks. They didn't want to be that. They wanted to be them. They didn't want to be Hammond. None of those guys. They may not have had his talent, but they had his ego. So which editor at the Tulsa World asked you to write like Bellum? <laughs> I picked that up on my own. Anybody <laughs> else? Yes, Walker. I agree with your theory about uh, why Hammond stopped writing. But I also would say, as Hammond got older, his drinking habits really had a bad impact on him. And 
you know, as you get older and you drink more and more alcohol, that's really going to shut you down. Okay. Uh, the other thing, living with Lillian Hellman. I'm not sure that was a good thing for him. It, it probably uh, made his life easy and he had to try to fall back on. She was like his crush. But I think it might have affected his writing also. I think you're right. I think both of those concerns are really addressed in The Thin Man in a fictional way, uh, certainly metaphorically. Uh, he's living with uh, Lillian Hellman. He, at one point, did he not say, I believe there's uh, Lillian Hellman in the introduction to The Big Knockover says that uh, he took her side and said she was Nora Charles, but she was also the other girl, the, all these, uh, you know, the literati, the, 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 the glitterati people that he was hanging out with, that she was a part of all of those people. That's how pervasive her influence was in his life. And if you read the, the, um, the Thin Man, that's how pervasive drinking was in his life as well at that time. You're abs I think you're absolutely right, Robert. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. The interesting thing about Hammett as a current author, I have sold well over 2,000 copies of his novels to used bookstores, mainly one store that I'm their agent. And they tell me they can't get enough Hammond. Really? There's two authors that can't get enough that are long dead, Rex Stout and Dashiell Hammond. And they're both the most popular mystery authors currently sell. And their works have never been out of print right. for many years. Right, right. It's a good what point to make. I think it's terrific. Yeah. You know, uh, I'd like to see Chandler up there a little bit too, but you know, yeah. that's just well, me. another one. I'm sorry. Okay. But Hammett never really got to the point where he wrote himself like Agatha Christie towards the end of her life and problems with, uh, uh, you know, dementia mm -hmm. started reducing her vocabulary so dramatically. And, you know, even though alcohol was playing a big, uh, a big role in his life, he, mm -hmm. because nothing else came out. Right. It didn't really show quite yeah, that much. Yeah, and I think you look at playback maybe and you see that the effects of alcohol on Raymond Chandler perhaps. I mean, I yeah. don't know, yeah, because it, it's much, of course it is an adaptation of a, of a, of a movie script, yeah. but it's still much, yeah, much simpler. I, the, the great line, I just ran on, you guys probably already know this, but I, I ran on this just recently. Uh, it's the line about Raymond Chandler, and I'm, I'm going to be inelegant with it, not as elegant as Chandler, but... Uh, Raymond Chandler said, had my books been any worse, I would not have been invited to Hollywood, and had they been any better, I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> Great quote from Chandler. Uh, you, I, you know what, it may, it may well be, Michelle, it should, yeah, it may well be. Anyone else? Yes? I don't know. Ever meet? Did, did Hammett ever meet uh, Humphrey Bogart? That's a very good question. I don't know. I one of the things, and this is not really addressing it, but uh, one of the things that I just read, I've been reading some old-time radio books, that Hammett would show up on the set of The Thin Man, and would insist that they do this, the the characters his way. I don't know if he was a visitor, perhaps to the set of the Maltese Falcon. He was certainly in Hollywood at the time. He was around those people. He was around Houston. I suspect that he probably, I suspect they probably did meet him. I don't have any concrete, I don't know, I don't have any concrete proof of that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it, it is amazing that John Houston won an Academy Award for the, the screenplay for the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> but if you, if you read the screenplay, and, and I have because it was in a film class I did, 
uh, the dialogue is taken directly from the novel. It's, it's literally as if John Huston just sat there and was typing what he saw on the printed page. Uh, and well, you can get an Academy Award for good judgment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know that. I don't know that either. Um, I know that there are, there have been some published, but boy, I have no idea. I can't imagine there's that many more. Uh, they'd all be black mask, right? Or they'd be because the other ones, the, the slicks, have all been reprinted. The ones right. from the slicks right. have all been reprinted. So you'd have to look and you know go to the. Uh, find out the black mass stories and then find out how many have been done, but they'd have to be the old black mass well, stories. Well, and, and so much of his, his copyright stuff, uh, or his copyrights, I should say, is, is just a morass of, of uh, you know, legal problems. I mean, is it owned by Harper and Rowe? Is it owned by the Lillian Hellman estate? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, mm -hmm. who actually owns it? Right. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. so, they did recently publish the complete uh, off story. Right. Including, because previously there were those two collections that had what I thought was mm -hmm. awesome, but this complete volume has stories that don't appear in those two collections. John Locke, uh, who is here, I think, unless he fell asleep, you there. John told me that uh, if you look at that, and you, this has probably been your experience, John says that if, which he has done, if you read all those Continental Locke stories, you see the blueprint from Maltese Falcon okay. and the different stories. Yeah. Yes, sir. Do you know when John Locke is awake or asleep? <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we'll say thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.